Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. Most often at Beth Am on Shabbat afternoon and in many communities, we take a look at next week's Parsha. Um, and most often that's the Parsha of the Kriyata Torah, the Torah reading. This week, I want us to look not at next week's Torah reading, but at next week's Haftarah. As I mentioned before, these are the first words of Torah and the first words of Haftarah that I ever encountered seriously. Uh, this was my Bar Mitzvah Parsha way back when. And uh, I remember I studied for my Bar Mitzvah Parsha with my Saba, my father's father, who was a Reform rabbi and a very significant influence in my life. And we studied the Torah reading uh, about the census and what it means to count and how counting is a significant part of expressing love. And we studied the Haftarah, a Haftarah which I only re-encountered later as an adult is in some ways a, a very a terrible text. The outcome is lovely, but it's a, it's a, it's a text of trauma um, as the prophet Hosea, Hosea uh, speaks about God's dismissing us, uh, accusing us, our ancestors of harlotry, and then pulling us back in. There's some who believe that what we're seeing in the Haftarah is a beautiful reconciliation between lovers who have um, gotten far from each other, and there are some who consider God to be a tyrant in Hosea's imagination, and the Israelites to be a battered spouse, and that we're seeing God kind of rope the Israelites back in, but not necessarily in a healthy dynamic. Um, there's some interesting meta discussions there. I want to focus on something micro rather than meta. And that is on the verses from the Haftarah, that if, if you know any of the verses from the Haftarah without realizing you do, it is these. Because the end of the Haftarah of Parshat Bamidbar are the words, Ve'erastich li le'olam. I will betroth myself to you forever. Verstichli betzedek of mishpat vechesed of rachamim. I'll betroth myself to you in righteousness and justice and loving kindness. Verstichli beemuna. I will betroth myself to you in faithfulness. Veyadat et adonai. And you will know God. By weird coincidence, my we, this was not chosen. Uh, for that reason, the uh, wedding ring that my parents uh, have worn since they were married in the 1960s have Verastichli Leolam embedded into it or engraved into it on the inside. That's not that uncommon. It's a very common wedding-themed verse. And then it, that became the last few verses of my Haftarah. Um, those who are on the Beth um, list received a text sheet. Um, I wish we could share it with those of you who are, who are not in that list, but I have no way of doing that technically now. So I'll teach this material, um, uh, recognizing that m- many of you do not have the actual words in front of you. If you want to look at the verses themselves, you can open up a Bible to the second chapter of Hosea, verses 21 and 22. Or if you're at an Eitzchayim Chumash, I'll give you the page number. Uh, in the Eitz Chaim Chumash, it is page 790 at the bottom. And um, as members of the Betham community know, this is not meant to be a lecture, but a class. So, so you know, jump on in if there are things you want to ask or say or comment on. Uh, I'm not intending uh, just to give oratory here. Okay, so... I quoted the verses quickly before. Let's slow it down if we're looking at them. It's the first text on the text sheet, um, if you have it. Ve'erastich le'olam. Let's look at that root. Aras, aleph, resh, sin. It means to betroth. 
It means to um, request and receives someone's um, fidelity, right? It's it, betrothal is the giving and the acquiring of troth. Troth is exclusive, intimate rights. It's fidelity with this person and only this person. It's the beauty and the challenge of marriage, right? The beauty of marriage is that I say I'm yours. The challenge of marriage is that you're the only one for me, right? And we uh, um, foreclose the notion of a certain kind of closeness with anyone else on the planet once that ring goes on the finger. So God is, or Hosea is saying in God's name here, Ve'erastichli, I, God, will betroth you to me. It's a transaction. We'd like to think of, of a marriage as, as a romance. There's romance built into it, but it was then and it still is now a transaction. It's a commitment. It's a covenant. It's a promise, right? I am betrothing you to me. I, God, am pulling you, the Jewish people, to me, le'olam, forever. This one's going to last. We'll get back to that in a, bit, a little bit. And remember that the pretext in the Haftarah is God remembering all the times when the marriage was not working out. So this is a renewing of vows, as it were. We have two couplets of words. Each of those couplets represents synonyms of one another. God says, I'm going to betroth myself to you, betzedek, justice, uvemishpat, righteousness, those can be interchanged. Bechesed uvrachamim, loving kindness and empathy, those two things can be interchanged. And then the next verse, ve'erastichli be'emunah, I'm going to betroth you to me with a sense of faithfulness. We'll break down that word in a little bit. In a little bit. The root amen is one of the most common used words in Western religion and the most least understood words. Aleph mem nun, what does the word actually mean? We translate it as faith, a believability, trust. We'll break down what that might mean. Ve'yadat et Adonai. And this is translated in several different ways. And some, some places translated as, and you will know God, meaning once I, God, re-betroth you to me, you'll really know what it's like to be in relationship with me. Some people understand the yada here to be the intimate yada, right? In the Bible, yada can not just mean um, intellectual knowledge, but carnal knowledge. We're going to be in a carnal, flesh-based relationship. And some translate it, I think it's a, it, it's a, I don't know, it's not quite a mistranslation, but I'm not sure it's, it's exactly right, then you shall be devoted to the Lord, as if somehow yodeya can be rendered as a sense of devotion itself. Okay. Um, if you, those of you who wear tefillin know that when we are binding the tefillin straps around our fingers three times, we say each time one of these ve'erastichlis, right, that's ring uh, metaphor that is bondage metaphor. It's both there, right? The wedding ring, which bonds uh, two spouses together, and bondage metaphor, right? We left the shackles of Egypt to be reshackled to God, rebound, and therefore limited uh, in what we can do and whom we can be with. That was the Jewish people's agreement, as it were, at Sinai, which, as we're about to see, failed many times and had to be reinitiated. Okay, the next, com- the next text on our sheet, which, I, again, I know not all of you have, is a commentary by the Malbim, Rabbi Meir Leibush um, Wisser, who was a rabbi in the Kiev area in the 19th century. And he's commenting on the words, Ve'erastichli. 
Okay. So I'll, I'll read each phrase uh, in Hebrew. I've, you have the translation there. In English, I'll translate it phrase by phrase as well um, because I know some of you are just experiencing this on an auditory level. This is now the Malbim imagining what Hosea is saying in God's name. And then, then in the sense of coming forward, at that point in the, fo- in the future, I will indeed betroth you. We're going to start again. We're going to put the past behind us, Israel. It's been rocky since Sinai. You strayed. I got angry. You came back. I embraced you. You sinned. I punished you. We're going to do it all over again. Kamosha Katav, as it is written, and the Malbim quotes the 62nd chapter of the book of Isaiah, verse 5, where it says, and these are words that you'll find familiar because they made it in a lyrical way into Lachadodi. Umasos chatan alkala, just as a groom rejoices over a bride, yasis alayech elohayech. So will God in the future rejoice over you, meaning at some point in the future we're going to have another chupa. God will be the groom, you will be the bride, and God will be as happy that day as we imagine the bride and the groom are on their wedding day. That's what's going to happen in the future. Back to the Malbim's words. They're going to be new betrothal. Different than it's been before. Pledging that we're going to start relating to each other in a way that we had been unsuccessful in the past. Kim he brings another verse from Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verse 30. Jeremiah says, in God's name, I'm going to create, I'm going to craft, I'm going to cut, literally, with the house of Israel, a brit chadasha, a new covenant. Again, a renewal of vows. This is back in the Malbim's voice. The earlier betrothal, the earlier terms of our relationship that we've been living through from Sinai until this moment in the 4th or 5th century BCE, maybe 6th century BCE, they were temporary. It's an interesting read. The Malbim is saying that Hosea is saying that God is saying Sinai Either it was intended to be only temporary or it turned out to be only temporary, but we're, we're no longer being held by that temporary na- nature of it. It simply was not going to be a covenant that was going to last. Rak lezman. It was a trial run, as it were. Ki hayu atidim lachto. Because Israel was somehow destined in the future, in the future uh, from Sinai's perspective, to sin. Ulevatel hakesher. And to break the connection, right? We know that the, the math in our society, 50% of people who stand under the chuppah and say, I do, eventually say, I don't, right? So there is a promise under that uh, canopy where betrothal is offered and transacted and acquired. And then at some point, there is sinfulness that passes the boundary of acceptability. And there's bitul hakesher, the relationship breaks down. Happens between people, happens between God and the Jewish people. And so whatever happened at Sinai, which was supposed to be the moment, the triumph, we're going to celebrate it in nine days, it was Raklazman. It was a temporary covenant, or Israel proved somehow that they had only been interested in a temporary one. Aval Az, this is the Malbim continuing, now, Lo Yechetu Od, somehow they're not going to continue to sin. And the bond will not be 
obliterated, will not be canceled. Up until now, we have no idea how this is a commentary on the verse. All he, so far, the Malbim seems to, be, seems to be saying that Hosea is calling for renewal of vows. Great. But how is there any indication that what's happening at that moment in Israelite history is going to be a better version than what happened at Sinai? This is the punchline. V'zeshekara. And this is why the verse continues. This is what it means by the continuation of the line. V'erastich li'leolam. This time I'm going to betroth myself to you forever. V'zeyehiyeh al yedei. And this is going to happen how? Not by magic. How is it going to happen? Al yedei. Quote. She'erastich li'betzedek uvemishpat. Because I'm going to betroth you to me this time with a sense of justice and a sense of righteousness. The Malbim is trying to make a contention that somehow at Sinai there was a failure. And the failure may have been in both directions. Maybe that they didn't understand what each side was getting into, right? Um, maybe they didn't know what marriage required of them. The uh, modern uh, marriage therapist John Gottman, who wrote a wonderful book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, contends that most people, when a marriage breaks down, when they're interviewed by people who know something about the institution of marriage, their explanation for why the marriage breaks down seems to be off-kilter. And therefore, they go into the second marriage with the same kind of... um, um, perhaps delusions about what relationship is and what relationship isn't. And the studies show that second marriages actually have a higher um, uh, ratio of divorce than first marriages. John Gottman believes that the primary reason, not the only, the primary reason why uh, relationships break down is because people have no idea what to expect of the other and of themselves in it. Not because they married the wrong person, not because they or the other was a scoundrel, but because they don't know what to expect in that relationship. Here, the Malbim is saying that somehow God is saying, I am committing a little bit more than I was the first time to be bitzedek with you, just with you, mishpat with you, to have a sense of righteousness. Does this mean that God's going to have more patience and therefore our waywardness is going to be accepted? Does this mean that God is expecting that from us? It's unclear in the Malbim's commentary. What is clear is that this is what the Malbim thinks is the recipe for an erusin that's going to last. If you turn over the, uh, the sheet, or on my sheet it's turned over, you may have printed it out differently. We have a similar comment, but almost in the other direction. This is uh, the JPS notes on the, from the 1985 edition of the Tanakh. Um, the 1985 edition of the commentary in the Tanakh. The Tanakh hasn't changed. Um, and this is what uh, the JPS says on this verse um, in that edition. As the bride price, which the bridegroom will pay, he will confer these qualities upon her so that she will never offend again. It's a really interesting contrast. The Malbim seems to be saying that what's going to make this relationship work this time is God's commitment. I'm going to betroth myself to you in justice and righteousness. That's how we're going to make it forever. And JPS reads it a little bit more, um, almost, uh, it's hard to put the right word to it, as if God is thrusting or foisting onto the Jewish people a new characteristic a characteristic of devotion, a characteristic of righteousness, and by I, God, kind of making you act this way in the relationship, it's going to last. It's gonna, we're going we're gonna to be able to stay together. One side is I'm changing what I do. 
the other reading is, I'm somehow making it that you change what you do, and some combination of that might give us an opportunity to linger in this relationship for a long time. Let me pause here for one second and see if there are uh, questions or comments on, on any of that, and then I want to um, do a few more commentaries. Unmute if you'd like to add. I see Marlise, yeah. Um, well, I was recognizing Mishpat from um, the Amida where uh talks about Melech who have uh, Mishpat, and it, it um, translates that as a uh, Righteousness with compassion or justice with compassion. So I was wondering, is compassion, um, is that an accurate translation of, of the words? Yeah. So for those in, in, the, in my Rashi class, we discuss this almost every, every week. Translation is a imp- wonderful and impossible task. It's, it's, it's nearly impossible to render any interesting or even not interesting ancient Hebrew word into modern English. For the most part, uh, we in modern English, we take the couplet of tzedek and mishpat, and it has to do with um, what is right, what is expected, what is fair. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof asks us, we believe, to pursue justice. Justice has to do with what is, is due, what someone is due. And chesed and rachamim have to do with, with, with qualities that are more generous, more empathic, more... Um, more giving of oneself, maybe more than one is due. Right? Maimonides, the Rambam, says that the definition of chesed is giving to someone even if they are not due it or more than they are due. So even though sometimes mishpat is translated along the second, uh, on the, the second set of words, mostly we understand tzedek and mishpat to be synonyms, synonyms each other, words that um, are appropriate for a courtroom, whereas chesed and rachamim are words that are appropriate for a hug, for a friendship, for a, a more intimate moment. Larry, Diane, I see your hand up. Friday afternoon, I'm preparing for next week's Haftorah Plethora. <laughs> your email comes in, I said, wow, this is great. <laughs> so I'll plug for next week's Haftorah Plethora, which will be about, obviously, this Haftorah. Uh, just a couple of quick, quick things. It was really funny in your Rashi class this week, three women talked about the various tichli, a wrapping of the tefillin on the fingers. I thought that was fascinating. Hmm. Um, you, you really have di- diverged away from the text of the chapter and the imagery, which is very interesting, as you, as you said. To my knowledge, I don't know. It, it, it may, may be wrong. You, uh, I don't think Isaiah is making the same reference of God as a bridegroom, but the interesting relationship that, that Hosea has God's the bridegroom, and it's Israel, actually. It's the nation of Israel that is the bride in this particular case, but the people are the bride. Usually God is our father, our king, and the relationship, the hierarchical relationship of a father to children is quite different than the relationship between a, 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 a husband and a wife a, a, uh, in, in this case. And the last thing I'm going to say, because I'll say everything else I want to say next week in the Haftar Plethora, is... I know that it's not a, the, the right interpretation, but when I when I rap and I say the Everest Tichli, um, uh, I'm thinking very distinctly that it is it, well, it's a, it's an uh, erusin, which I think I'm not sure that it does. Maybe comes from the word eros, which is a love, a romantic love. I'm not sure if that's true. I've never even say, say that, but um, I've. I, I 
take of it as, as an engagement, as a betrothal, as a kiddushin between, between myself and God. And these are the values that I want God to imbue on me. So in that sense, it is very much like what, what it is that um, the Maldives was saying, or the JPS, what the JPS was saying. Yeah. How are you taking so much time? No, it's great. So many things to respond to. First, that, you know, the question of whether or not erosin comes from eros is fascinating. I mean, the root aras is a very old biblical root. Um, and I don't know enough about the origin of the Greek root eros to know. If, it's, if, it, if they're not connected, it's a, it's a phenomenal coincidence, right? Um, except by the time that it, let, let's assume for the moment that they are associated, I have no idea. Um, by the time it presents itself in the Greek world, it really has to do with, with the feeling of love, right? And the root aras, in Hebrew, is not really about the feeling of love. It's simply what you're promising. It's what you're offering, right? Every, every couple I work with when we go to a chuppah, I say to them, I want them to know exactly what's happening under the chuppah. The bride and the groom have to have da'at, have to have an understanding of what's happening, and there is a transaction, and that transaction is based on feelings. It might be based on that which the Greeks called eros. But what the transaction is, is a promise, it's, it's conferring upon yourself the promise to act in a certain way all the time, whether or not you're feeling it, right? And I'm not sure that's what the Greeks meant by eros, but there might be people on the screen who, who know more about this particular issue than I do, and if so, please pipe up. In terms of the, the hierarchical versus almost symmetrical relationship we have with God, I would say to that, yes, and then some, right? We have so much imagery, right? It's the, 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 the king and the subject is different than the bride and the groom, is different than the shepherd and the sheep, right? There's, there's a way in which we project onto the, onto the divine um, the, 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 the force uh, in whose presence and as a result of whose power we feel uh, infinitesimal and small and therefore we owe. There's the presence of comfort that we so rarely feel from the world and therefore we project it onto God so we can have that. And there's a mutuality. And the Kabbalah expands upon that mutuality. Those of you who know a little bit about the, the Sfirot, um, these, these emanations of God's presence, the, the, the bottom rung of the, of the Kabbalah is Shekhinah. It's also sometimes, well, it's most often called Shekhinah. So Shekhinah is often translated as the feminine presence of God. It's also called Knesset Yisrael, the, the, the feminine gathering of the Jewish people. So Shekhinah is both God's lowest rung and our highest rung. So if we, if we kadosh, 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 enough, 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 onto our tippy, tippy, tippy toes, we enter into the realm down to which God has allowed God's self to descend, and there we meet. So when we're meeting there, are we still the subject and God as our king? Are we, are we the sheep and God as a shepherd? Or are we um, in, a, in a union temporarily, right? Um, those who did my meditation last week uh, know the last week, uh, the week of the Omer, this is actually the end of that week, was Yesod. Yesod, according to the Kabbalah, is the level in, in the Omer of bonding, a foundational bonding where you go past mutuality to unity. Most of our connections with other people at best are mutual. Right? We're both getting something that we need. Yesod is beyond mutuality to unity, where for an instant, for a micro-instant, right, as Buber might say in the I-thou moment, that once you notice you're in it, it's over. It's not that you're getting something and the other is getting something. You're one. 
It's hard to stretch our minds that way, right? A moment in tefillah where it's not that I'm praying to God and God is listening or God is responding, but I know this sounds almost sacrilegious. It's I, God, together. I'm not saying that I am God, but in that moment of, of ecstatic prayer or a quiet prayer, there's a unity, an indivisibility. That's what we're trying to get to in Yusod, and that's what I think the, the, the Kabbalah is imagining at that level, and that is partly what's happening in a bridegroom um, uh, image, except that, this is uncomfortable to say but important to say, in the ancient world, it wasn't a mutual relationship, right? The, it, it was not, the, the groom's relationship to the bride was not the same as the bride's relationship to, to the groom, either with respect to fidelity, what was offered, right? The reason why there was only one ring at an ancient Jewish wedding ceremony is that the bride was giving troth, to the husband and being betrothed, the groom was not giving troth to the bride because he could theoretically marry other women. He was not being betrothed, right? And certainly they were not in an equal position financially in terms of power. Our modern image of relationship grafted backwards onto this moment suggests that what's happening between God and the Jewish people is a mutuality. There's probably a very significant power game being played out here as well. Um, Anything else, Teibel? Um, when you started, the way I heard this, I'm not saying it's correct, but that you were saying that this text, this Haftorah, bound you in a certain way, that it was the first serious engagement and it was done in the context of a family relationship with your grandfather, who was also a rabbi. So that's a complicated in a good way, relationship. And I'm just wondering if this is one of the texts that has bound you for longest, how you've heard that, how you, it might speak to you differently or you focus on it differently in different phases of your life, particularly at the point where you yourself became a rabbi, you yourself can't be entered in a covenantal relationship with another human being. Hmm. Thank you for that comment, Table, for kind of mirroring that back to me. I was not even aware of those associations I was making them. And thank you, everyone, for being here for, for my therapy session. I'm really appreciating what I'm able to share with everyone. Um, that's really interesting to think about. It's, it's not necessarily the verses that I've thought about most in my life. But yes, these are the first verses of the tradition that I encountered seriously. And when I teach them, uh, even and especially in this moment, I do feel my Saba with me uh, on a level even more profound than always. There's a piece of him that's always with me because I learned so much about what it means to be a husband and a friend and a rabbi and a human being from him, and I miss him terribly. But I specifically remember the conversations we had over these verses uh, and the gentleness of his voice. Um, so it's interesting for you to mirror back that uh, these verses about being bound um, emerge from a very bonded relationship that I have with him and hope in some ways that I still have with him across space and time. Thank you for that, Taibo. Um, we're getting close to uh, the end of Shabbat, and by which I mean we're basically at the end of Shabbat. So what you have on the rest of the source sheet, which I encourage you to look at um, later on, uh, are a couple of um, comments, including some verses from Isaiah, that get into what the root 
Aleph, Mem, Nun, might mean. The crib notes is that we understand it to mean uh, faith or um, or believability. But um, Radak, a French commentator from the Middle Ages, quoting uh, Isaiah, suggests that that root might have to deal with um, steadfastness or eternity or things that will last. And the linkage between the first part of the Shior and the second part of the Shior, had we done both parts, would have been that even if the Hosea model is emerging from a context of an unhealthy and imbalanced relationship, I do think that the wisdom that emerges is that if we want to get to a relationship of emunah, not only of faithfulness but of endurance, then what we owe to it is tzedek and mishpat and chesed and rachamim, and we owe it, the relationship to expect it more of ourselves than we expect it of the other, and that has a chance of making those nuptials last a very long time, whether it's an actual marriage or a friendship or a relationship between uh, a rabbi and a community uh, or any other relationship of meaning uh, that we want to last. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.